Lord, we thank you for the cross. We love you for the cross. God, we recognize that we're massively inadequate and insufficient and that it's what you've done on the cross that makes us right with you. That and that alone. And for that, we say thank you. For that, we praise you. For that, we surrender our lives to you. For that, we humbly bow before you. For that, we come before the God of the universe asking you to move and to work in a way that only you can. So, Lord Jesus, have your way here. Um, Have the freedom to move and work amongst us. Would you bring clarity? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring encouragement? Would you bring confidence? Whatever it may be that you need to bring to us here in this moment, God, I pray that you would bring it. God, for Josh Swanson and for Hope Church, pray for Pastor Josh as he's preaching right now. God, would you be filling him up, lifting him up, um, that he can rightly proclaim your word. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your great sacrifice. Would you come now and have your way amongst your people? We pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, well, good morning. And... uh, So good to see you all here uh, with us here this morning. Go and get your Bibles out, Acts 12, as we continue in our sermon series uh, in the book of Acts. You'll notice that uh, as uh, we begin, as we've been moving through the book of Acts and we started uh, at at the outset, we talked about there being uh, some different, uh, different uh, parts or elements or series, mini series, if you will, in the book of Acts, and we started out with the church, initiated really the foundational elements or the, the, the beginning of the church, and then where we've been the last number of weeks, uh, the church ignited, where the church really has come into life and really beginning to grow. Uh, but here, uh, this morning, as we come to Acts 12, we, we enter a real pivotal point in the book of Acts, a, a turning point, if you will. And so for the next number of weeks, this third part of the book of Acts that will take us through chapter 19 is uh, what we're calling the church advancing. Right, the church advancing, and, and where the primary focus of uh, the first uh, 10, 11 chapters in the book of Acts uh, has been uh, around uh, the church in Jerusalem. It's been primarily that the gospel's gone to the Jews, and most of the work has happened through uh, the apostles. Uh, starting really last week, last couple of weeks, what we saw in chapter 10 and 11, and what we're uh, going to see uh, moving forward in the book is, is that shift or, or uh, a shift in focus. And away from the church in Jerusalem, away primarily from the apostles, away primarily from the Jews, though not exclusively from one to the other, but we begin to see this massive shift that takes place, and we see the advance of the church, the expanse of the church, and where the church begins to make great headway uh, geographically, spiritually, and in so many uh, senses of the word. And so we, we come to this new phase or series or mini-series of the book, if you will, uh, but uh, the title of the message this morning, I got real creative, uh, is also The Church Advancing. Uh, it's kind of like the title track, if you will, for uh, this particular uh, part of the book of Acts. But I really felt like that was appropriate given the context of all that's unfolding and all that's happening here in uh, Acts chapter 12. And the church advancing, <clears throat> we've already prayed for our time together, so let's just begin to launch into it. Let's start with this thought. We think about the church advancing. Here's what we see in the first four verses is that persecution can't stop us. 
And I've intentionally chose the, the word us instead of it, uh, not because it's specific solely to us or only for us, but I do want us to see this applicably and, and in our lives personally. And this is very much a part of who we are and, and who God is calling us to be uh, as a church. So I understand that this is big picture, but as we see this, and as we come to the text this morning being challenged specifically, that persecution can't stop us. Let me read to you the first a few verses here of Acts chapter 12. Here's what it says. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, right, part of the inner circle, one of the, 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 the three that were closest to Jesus. And like any politician, look at verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he's like, well, that worked. Let's try that again. Uh, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads. Each squad had four soldiers that would rotate uh, in terms of who was on duty. So four squads at any point in time, four soldiers are both chained to and watching uh, and or watching uh, Peter. Four soldiers, four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And really what Luke intends in that is he intends to do to Peter what was done uh, to James. And we look at the church advancing. The first thing we see here in these first four verses is that persecution can't stop us. It can't stop us. Now, now listen, let me be really, really clear about this. There's a lot of things that persecution can do. Okay, it, it, can, um, it can silence us. It can undercut us. Uh, it can strip away opportunities. But hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this, loved ones. It cannot, it cannot, it cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? The church, you might, might want to jot this down, make sure you own this in your heart of hearts. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Tell me, what is it? It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. Tell the person next to you, it's unstoppable. Right, it's unstoppable, man. We've got to get our head around the reality that the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. And we look far too often, we look at what's going on around us. We're like, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing. Jesus doesn't lose, loved ones. He never loses. The church is unstoppable. Now notice two things, two things we see here in these first couple of verses. In terms of persecution can't stop us. Here's the first, th- first thing we see is that death can't stop it. Now you might go, well, you know, Mike, honestly, death seems like a pretty good way to stop it. I mean, I'm thinking of a way to stop something. Killing it would be uh, the best way to go about it. And so notice, look at verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. That seems like a pretty good way to to bring an end uh, to what was going on. Now I want you to notice a couple things here as we think about our own lives, as we think about uh, what's happening here and begin to apply some of this. Right, understanding that James was killed. Uh, know this, loved ones, that sometimes, sometimes for believers, for followers of Jesus, things end very, very badly. I mean, James, this is one of the one of the first followers of Jesus, one of the best followers of Jesus. And from a human standpoint, okay, and, and, and I want to emphasize from a human standpoint, his life was cut short. Sometimes, sometimes for believers, things can add or can end uh, very badly. In fact, we believe that every apostle uh, died martyrs, deaths. And you got to know, you got to know that following Jesus can have very grave consequences. 
this side of eternity. All right? It can have very grave consequences this side of eternity, certainly not on the other side of eternity. But, but I, I, I got to warn you, I got to exhort you, I got to encourage you, please, please, please do not buy into the disillusionment or the false gospel that if, if I follow Jesus, that nothing bad can happen in my life. And, and, and we, we hear that preached more and more in our society. Hey, if you, if you love him, if you'll follow him, um, and some guys use it for their own personal gain, if you'll give more to the church, you're gonna be happy, healthy, and wealthy just like me. Now, help me understand this, because when I read the scriptures, I can't find that verse. Is that in there somewhere? Because, see, I can find a lot of verses about laying down your life, giving up your life. I think about 2 Timothy 3, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say that Satan prowls about like a little kitty cat looking to be pet, right? It's a roaring lion. He wants to devour us. That's a pretty one-sided reality of the scriptures that things, things may go quite poorly, in fact. And part of this, part of this is understanding that when we see hardship, when we see difficulty, when we see struggle, being reminded of the fact it's exactly what God said would happen. Sometimes some of you find yourself in a really difficult place today. An incredible hardship has come upon you. There's some great strain in your family. There's, there, there's this huge burden in your life. You're like, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering? Why aren't you responding? Why aren't you coming through for me? And the reality is, is God is proving himself true. He told you it was going to be hard. He promised us that. And to be reminded of that reality, we have to reject false gospels. The reality of death. Let me just say this as well in in regards to death. I think this is so important for us to live with this in view. Um, You got to remember that your days are numbered. Your days, my days, all of our days are numbered. Now, there's this fascinating fact about humanity. Check this out. 100% of people who live die. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that, that, that blew my mind this week. I was like, wow, everyone who lives dies. Now, some, some know-it-all are smart. I going to be like, well, actually, there's Elijah and Enoch. Okay, great. There's two exceptions. If you're that righteous, maybe God will just sweep you away too. That hadn't been the case. Jesus himself even died. Okay? 100% of people who live die. Don't fool yourself. Your days are number two. You're not, you're not immortal in the sense of not tasting death. Now, a generation, no doubt a generation, will see the return of Jesus and they'll be spared from that. And there's been lots of generations that think they're the one. I'm kind of hoping we're the one. Okay, that'd be great. I'd be all for just skipping that death thing. But I'm realistic about the fact that it's a great possibility that we won't be. That you and I could taste and experience death and have to be reminded of that. Have to keep in view that our days are numbered the question isn't, am I going to die? More so, but when am I going to die? And when that day comes, there's nothing that I can do to stop it. Now, it would seem, it would seem that this in and of itself would be the worst possible form of persecution, to suffer a death at the hands of someone who is intent on silencing your faith. And yet I want to hold this reality in tension with what other things we see in the Scriptures, namely in Philippians 1. 
Paul has some really powerful words to say to us there. He says to live as Christ and to die as, tell me, what's that next word? Gain. Okay, so to, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Okay, so, so over here, uh, to live is Christ. How many people say that? That's a pretty good option, right? Yeah, that, that's a pretty good option. Um, over here, to die is gain. Okay, with the exception of weight, when in your life is gain a bad thing? Okay, right? I mean, that, that, that's a good thing. And so you, you start looking at stuff and you go, okay, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I win. Like, I win. It doesn't matter what happens. See, either way, I'm a win. And, and I think all of us, all of us love the scenarios, the times in life where you have two great options. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, man, this is, this is a great option and this is a great option. And I was kind of chuckling as Pastor Stefan was mentioning the Super Bowl because we really have the antithesis of that today. Right, most of America won't watch the game, we'll endure it, okay? And I don't know about you, a couple people were like, oh, I'm going for the Seahawks or I'm going for the Patriots or something. We gotta get up and pray over some people. What is wrong with them? <laughs> Can't go for either of those teams. The only plausible scenario where the Super Bowl works out well today is both teams lose, okay? It's a lose-lose situation. And yet, listen, listen, listen. And I'm not joking, That's, I'm serious. That really is a lose-lose situation today. But, but how many of us, how many of us, look at our spiritual lives and we take that verse from Philippians 1 and we think to live as Christ and to die as gain and we treat it more like that than we do the reality of what Paul intended us to understand it to be. Well, if I gotta live, I gotta keep living on in this sin-stained world and it's just hard and it's difficult and it's worrisome and it's burdensome. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't wanna die. Why, why in the world would you not wanna die? Like everything gets better. Everything. But yet we do that. And yet what Paul goes on to say in that passage, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. Because to live on means fruitful ministry and more ministry. And if, if I, and to die and to depart and to be with the Lord is far better. He makes no qualms about which he would prefer. But he says, listen, either of these are great. And I think for far too many of us, we think of life like, wow, I got Christ or I gain. No, can we start seeing this from an eternal perspective? To live as Christ, that's a phenomenal option. I'll have more of that, thank you. And to die, it's just better. It's just better. The reality that persecution can't stop us and being reminded of this, when you start living in this mindset, and even the harshest, harshest form of persecution isn't the worst case scenario for, for the believer. In fact, it's the best case scenario. So you start saying, okay, what's the worst thing you can throw at me? Fantastic, bring it on, because that's the very thing I want. I get to go meet Jesus. See, and in that, loved ones, we're unstoppable. Persecution can't stop us. Death can't stop. And let me just point this out here real quick. Verse three and four, read right about Peter being in prison. Uh, note this, that prison can't hold it. Prison can't hold the church. Prison isn't going to stop the church. Any type of authority is not going to stop the church. They can't hold Peter. We'll see this in a few moments. Literally just rolls right out of the prison with an angel. I just want to point out that in parts of the world today where this type of thing is attempting to be done, that the church is flourishing there. It's flourishing. 
Did you know that they believe today more than any day throughout all of human history that the church is stronger and thriving and growing more than it ever has before? Now, we don't maybe see it in our particular context, but it's not just about us. It's about the entirety of the world and what's happening there. But I think when we look at this prison thing, there's probably a part of Peter that would have loved to have just switched places with James. I'm done with this mess. I'm just going to go home and be with the Lord. But maybe I'll just say this, encourage us in this. It's one thing to say that you're willing to die for someone, but it's a whole other thing to say that you'd be willing to live for them. You know what I'm saying? And so it's one thing, and and I I feel like this comes up a lot when I'll do marriage counseling or premarital counseling. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd die for my wife. I would lay down my life for my spouse. Great, will you take the trash out? Will you help fold the laundry? Will you clean up after her? Will you walk alongside her? Right, and it's like chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. But the reality is there are a lot of guys that are like, no. You don't really love your wife. That's part of this. It's one thing to like, well, I can just die and be done. But it's a whole other thing to have to endure and forbear and over and over and over again being willing to move forward in this. And Peter, no doubt, right, prison can't hold it understanding some of this reality. Persecution can't stop us. Notice secondly, verse 5, that prayer will empower us. Prayer will empower us. So Peter was kept in prison. You might want to mark, underline, circle, highlight, all the above, whatever works for you, these next few words. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all, I want you to notice the church's response to struggle and difficulty. In the face of difficulty, in the face of struggle, in the face of hardship, the church got before God and begged and pleaded with him to move and to work for his name's sake. Now, is that, is that how you and I respond? Is, is, is that what drives us to prayer? Or do we just, uh, I mean, one of the things that, that you don't see explicitly, though it'll be fleshed out here as we move through the text a little bit, is, is that these people, this is probably about four in the morning as we move through the text where they're praying, which means one of two things. They got really, really early to pray or they just never went to sleep. See, they are fervently, passionately uh, petitioning the Lord on this issue. Now, now the, the, the thing is not, well, if you get up at four and pray, then you're okay. The issue is, are we getting after this? Are we chasing the Lord? Are we developing the habit of praying earnestly? Just this morning, I was reading the story. Remember Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah, and uh, the Assyrian army is just kind of rolling up nations left and right, and he comes down to uh, Judah, and in the midst of all the people, well, Hez- uh, Sennacherib doesn't, but he sends his general and the presence of all the people. He's like, you're next. And your God can't stop us. And all the other gods that people appeal to, like, I didn't do anything. And so just prepare yourself. And, and, and some of the officials are like, hey, can we speak in another language so these guys don't know what you're saying? It's like, nope, nope, they need to hear it too. Because they're the ones that are, one of the things I say, they're the ones that are destined to eat the dung to sustain, sustain themselves. So they need to know what's happening. A word of this comes to Hezekiah. And what's his first response? He goes right to the Lord. In fact, in, in, in this story, it actually shows up three times in the Old Testament, but one of the places, he takes a letter that is written to him, goes right into the temple and begins to pray. He said, go get Isaiah and tell him to meet me in the temple. I'm gonna go pray. 
See, that's his response. Is, is they recognize that like what, what, what empowers us is prayer. And I think we, 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 we got to recognize, we got to realize that the prayer is not a last resort. It is a first resort. And sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I'm certainly guilty of this. I, my imagine, I imagine that you've probably been guilty of this too. Something comes up, it's like, well, what does God's word say about that? That's, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good place to go. And, and uh, I, I'm going to seek counsel from others. That's, that's a good thing. Maybe even make a pro and cons list on how should we handle this or what should we do about this? It's like, man, none of these things are working. Well, I guess I'll pray. Eh, wrong. Okay, flawed from the start. The first thing, the first thing is, Recognize, no, I got to go right to the Lord. I got to, I got to let Him speak into this. And I think part of the reason that we sometimes treat prayer as a last resort is we don't see prayer the way that God sees prayer. Loved ones, we've got to come to the place where we recognize and realize that prayer is a primary ministry and function of the church and in the church. And until we come to the place that we recognize and realize that prayer is a primary ministry, not, not some secondary thing, not like for, well, the, you know, like the, 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 the more charismatic people like to pray, so they'll do that, but I'm, I'm going to do the study and the intellectual thing. No, no, a primary ministry, until we recognize that we do not see prayer the way that God intended it to be seen in the kingdom of God. It is a primary function. It is a primary thing that God calls us to. It's so interesting. It says that earnest prayer, some of your translations say they were praying fervently. Check this out. The Greek word there for that is a medical term, right? Luke was a physician, so no doubt he'd use these words, but it was a medical term that described stretching a muscle to its limit. Now, I, I, I like going to the gym. I love a good workout. And that's the whole intent of going to the gym and working out, right? As I, I want to stretch the muscles to the absolute limit, to the, the point of utter fatigue or to complete failure. And then what happens in that? You build strength. You get a little bit stronger. And then the next time you can do a little bit more or you can do it, uh, you, you can do a little bit longer, a little bit faster, a little bit better, whatever it may be. That's the way we've got to see prayer. Where, where, man, I'm being stretched to the limit. I just can't do it anymore. All right, now let's come back again and let's stretch ourselves just a little bit further and just a little bit further and just a little bit further beyond that. We have to see it as a developing habit. And sometimes, we think about prayer empowering us, sometimes we treat it more like a lifeline um, to alleviate the pain, to eradicate the circumstance, to make something quit or stop. God, make, make it stop, make it go away. Help me, revive me. Now, let me be clear that it's not wrong to ask God to heal, to restore, to redeem, to fix, to make right. All, all those things are good things. They are good things. But sometimes, sometimes what God wants is he wants that really difficult thing, that really hard thing. He wants to let that just press in on you. Because you've got to get to a point where you're going to come to him in a manner, in a way that you just wouldn't come if left to normal daily living. And because God loves you so much, he won't remove it and he allows it to press in on you further and further and further so you get to the point where you see or understand or know the thing that he wants you to get. Some of you are like, God, why, why aren't you healing? Why aren't you restoring? Why aren't you fixing? Why aren't you making this right in my life? And maybe what God would want to say to some of you right now is because you're not listening. You're not getting what I'm after. 
You're not responding to what I'm calling you to. One of the very things that God may be saying to you is he's saying no because he loves you and he wants something more for you. Prayer will empower us. I had the benefit, I've talked about my mom from time to time and just the amazing prayer warrior that she is. And so I had the benefit of growing up around seeing that and experiencing that and knowing that. But some of you, some of you might be going, like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what this would look like. Help me frame this. Help me know how to do this. Help me, help me to know how to proceed in this. And uh, my mom actually just wrote a book, a, a tiny book, maybe, maybe in a long paper. Uh, it's probably 20 pages of a Word doc on prayer. And uh, it's going to come out on, I think, Amazon, like ebook for like 99 cents in a week or two. But if you want it, if you want it, I'll give you the PDF. Give me your email and I'll send it to you. If you don't have a printer, I'll print one off for you. Very practical, very tangible ways that begin to push us down the road in helping us pray in a manner, in a way that God has called us to be. So for some of you, some of you, it's just a manner of, I don't value it, I don't want to do it. Others of you are like, help me. And that's really where this little book or booklet could be a great assistance to you. So if you want it, uh, you're certainly welcome to it. Just let me know. As we think about the church, we think about prayer and how it should empower us. Uh, one of the things I think would be foolish of us not to mention is that we should be doing this as a church. This is something as a church that we should be doing. And in fact, we do some different things as a church. Let me make them known to you. Maybe you're not aware of some of these things. Uh, uh, on Wednesdays at noon, we sit right there, right kind of where Gary and his family are sitting and, and around there, and we pray. We pray for the church. We pray uh, for you all. We pray for those who have various illnesses, sicknesses, diseases, the different ministries of the church. We spend about 45 minutes just praying for the church. Invite you to come and be a part of that. Mike, I work. Mike, I'm on the other side of town. I could never get there. I'd tell me. I'll send you an email. I'll tell you what we're praying about. And join us remotely in that. Sunday morning at 8.30, we gather in room five. We pray really for the service. Pray for this moment right now that you would hear what God is wanting to speak into your life and that you would respond appropriately. Those are some of the things that we're praying about. Come join us in that. Uh, we have what we call the prayer line. And that's really the way that we communicate various prayer needs in the congregation, things that are coming up. And we don't put anyone on that who doesn't ask to be put on that. And so a number of you might be like, I've never heard of that. Well, now you're hearing about it. If you want to be on that, mark that, note that. Uh, get that to the office, get that to myself, and we'll, we'll include you in that. And then one other thing that I want to make you aware of is something that's coming up here in about three and a half weeks. Uh, February 25th is the beginning of Lent. And... Uh, I, I kind of chuckle because depending on uh, how liturgical of an upbringing you had, it tends to influence whether you enjoy Lent or despise it. And if you grew up in it, you tend to not have uh, good associations with it. And if you didn't grow up in it, you, you tend to really enjoy it and, and like it. And just in case you're wondering, Lent is not originally a Catholic thing, okay? Um, the, the, there's a great history to that. But starting on February 25th, over the course of the next 40 days, we're going to have a prayer emphasis as a church that's going to move us to Easter. And what we're going to do to start that time off is actually the night of February 24th from uh, darkness, uh, sundown on that night, we're going to call the church to a corporate fast. I can't make any of you participate. It's entirely possible that Becky and I will be the only two people fasting. Now, I doubt that'll happen. I doubt that'll happen, but it's possible. But we're going to call everyone to a corporate fast. And then that evening on the 25th, we're going to gather together here for a while and we're going to pray. 
And then I think it'd be kind of cool to break the fast together. We'll roll into the multi-purpose room because, you know, if, if Christians get together, you've got to eat. So we'll do uh, some bread and soup and we'll break the fast with one another. But being empowered to pray, pushing ourselves, uh, growing in that where God would move us to a place of a deepening desire and a deepening dependency upon himself. That's what we're after. And prayer is going to empower the church. That's what's going to advance the church. We have to be a praying church. And part of being a praying church is a church that seeks God's direction, that seeks God's guidance, that asks God to move us along. And so I think it would be foolish of us to not stop right here in this moment and to just take a minute or two to pray. So I'm going to ask all of you just silently where you are. If you want to pray with the person next to you, you're certainly welcome to, but don't feel like you have to. But let's ask God to help us. Let's pray uh, to God and ask him to help us being, uh, to be a church that prays uh, in a manner that's honoring to him. Let's do that. God, we pray that you would help us to pray. God, that you would grow us in our prayer, that you would stretch us uh, in this regard. God, help us. God, help us. God, help us. That Faith Church would be a church that prays, that we wouldn't see it as some peripheral thing, but as a primary thing. Grow us, stretch us, develop us in this manner. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, the church advancing. Persecution won't stop us. Prayer will empower us. Here's the third thing, really the majority of the text. And honestly, a pretty funny story uh, to boot. But God's intervention sustains us. Okay, there's the point. God's intervention sustains us. Think about the church advancing. It's God himself, his intervention, that's going to sustain us. And so notice verse 6. Uh, when Herod was, uh, was about to bring him out, on that very night, so the night before, next morning, Peter's going to his execution. Check this out. Peter was sleeping. Wait, what? He's sleeping. I mean, he has to know what's coming. How in the world is he sleeping? I, mean, I don't know about you. If I'm, if I'm on the verge of being executed, I'm probably at best tossing and turning, but more so frantic about trying to find a solution. Yet God's intervention sustains us. Here's why I believe Peter was sleeping. I believe that Peter was sustained. He sustained trust in God's promises. He sustained a trust in the promises of God. In fact, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but in John 21, one of the things that Jesus told Peter, he said that as an old man, you're going to be led where you don't want to go and be stretched out. And I think, I think there's a pretty good chance that Peter goes, well, one of two things is happening. Apparently now I'm old and this is it. And it's exactly what God told me. Or I'm not old yet. And so this isn't going to happen. All you yahoos can stay up. I'm going to bed because something's going to happen. And he, I mean, he's out cold. He's out cold. In fact, so much so check this out. He's sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door. And those are other guards uh, regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Okay, so uh, if an angel shows up, probably pretty bright in there. Now check this out. 
still cashed. Because notice what the angel has to do. <laughs> he struck Peter on the side. He's like, really? Wake up, man. And so he strikes him and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. This is how out he is. Check this out. He said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's so out cold, even as he's being led out of the prison, he's like, it's kind of a weird dream. Kind of hope it comes true, whatever. And then eventually he's going to end up on the outside and go, oh my goodness, this was real. He's that cashed because he's so sustained by the promises of God. And I wonder, I wonder, loved ones, how many things, how many things in our lives are the sources of worry or the sources of doubt or fear and anxiety. And if we really, really consider the whole of God's promises, we would cease to worry about those particular things. You know, you know what I'm saying? If I really step back and say, you know, God, if you are who you really say you are, if, if you are really true in this manner, am I really going to freak out about this thing? Am I really going to be undone by this thing? Is there going to be fear around this particular item? Sustained trust in God's promises. I think for us to do that, there's probably a few things that need to happen in our lives. One is we need to know the promises of God. You, you can't know what God promised if you don't know his promises, right? And so I, I got to know what he tells me. I, I got to know what God has promised to me in the scriptures and why it's so important to be diving into God's word. Secondly, I think we need to be reminded of God's promises. It's why Sunday morning, it's why uh, discipleship groups, it's why walking with one another is so important. How easily we get distracted or sidetracked or lose focus of what God is calling us to. And then it comes to a point where we just simply need to trust God's promises. I just come to the place where I trust God's promises. I allow the faithfulness of God in the past to give me confidence for the future. A sustained trust in God's promises. Here's the second thing. All right, we start talking about Peter being led out. Jump down to verse uh, 10. Right, he's already rolled past all the guards. He's already rolled out of the gate. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, can you see the angel? Angel's probably like just kind of floating along or whatever, and Peter's kind of stepping over the guards. Like, this is just kind of weird. Are they going to wake up? And oh, I don't even have chains on. And then notice what it says next. Past the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And Peter would be like, oh, we were almost there. How are we going to get out of the gate? And I, th I think, I mean, it's just me personally. I don't know if this is really how it happened. Notice what the text says next. It says it opened for them of its own accord. I kind of think the angel went, went check this out. Whoosh, and the door just swings open, right? And it's like, wow. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, right now, he, now he wakes up. Like you stand, you, you ever have, I mean, I had that, I slept walk a little bit. I had two times, two times in my childhood where I woke up and I'm like, I'm in the front yard. What am I doing out here? I mean, I've, I've had that happen twice. I mean, so, but, but I was just in my bed. I wasn't in chains with guards and doors and gates and all that jazz. And, and so here he wakes up and instantly check this out. Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. See, God's trust, he sustained trust in God's promises. He sustained trust in God's continued intervention. And he realizes this. He comes to this point. And then, so notice the text goes on. This is, 
I think this is one of the funniest accounts we find in all the scriptures. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. And I love this, where many were gathered together and were praying. It's probably like four in the morning. They're all gathered together praying. And then check this. Okay, I need, I need a few volunteers. Give me a few volunteers. Come up here. We, you, you just got to see this because it's so ridiculous. Come on, give me three, four volunteers. Come on. Come on. All right. Alan, you're Peter. Go over there. Okay. Tamara, since you're the only girl, you're going to be Rhoda. Okay. And uh, so you're, you're, you're right here. All right. And we'll, we'll be the church that's praying for them. And so, so check this out. Peter comes, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. And so, yeah, great job getting on your knees. And we're like really praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Right, who is it? And he's like, hey, it's Peter. And then I love this. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It's like, this is amazing. And then comes running in. Peter's here. Right? And so, so then check this out. Peter's here. And, and look at what they said. They said to her, you're out of your mind. I'm like, what are you praying for? Aren't you asking God to do something? It's like, Peter's here. You're out of your mind. And then it continues. But she kept insisting that it was so. He's like, no, Peter's out there. Peter's out there. Peter. And all the while, here's the best thing. He's just knocking, right? Like left on the street. And I'm thinking, God just moved me out of prison past guards and chains and gates. And I'm going to get arrested because the church won't open the door. What is wrong with these people? And they go on. They, she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Not about you. If it's not Peter, but it's an angel, I'd want to see that too. I, <laughs> I think either way, I want to check out what's going on at the door. But they, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he keeps knocking. Finally, Peter prevails over all of them. Right? And so they all come to the door. Right? They open it far, far longer than they should have. And then, okay, show us, show us amazed. Right? They're all uh, they're amazed. And so apparently they're making a bunch of noise because Peter motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Right? Shh. The universal sign for be quiet. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. And then this. Then he departed and went to another place. So you can go to your seat. You're gone, man. You left. All right, go ahead ahead and sit down, guys. Thank you for that. See, but God's continued intervention. Now, no doubt, no doubt God walked with them through the entirety of that. From the guards, to the chains, to the gate, to the next gate, on and on and on, even when the knuckleheads took him a little while to open the gate and let him in. And here's the crazy thing. See, he didn't stay. He knew he couldn't stay. He knew that, hey, you know what, I I can't stay here. And in fact, his ministry in Jerusalem would never be the same. But here's what you got to know. In the same way that God continually intervened in this scenario, God continues to intervene in your life and in my life today that he is constantly and continually at work. God didn't speak the universe into existence, spin it into orbit and step back and be like, well, you're on your own. Hope it works out for you. He's actively involved, intentionally, deliberately involved in your life, intervening on a variety of levels. 
I had this experience, uh, this encounter. I spent two summers in West Africa in Sierra Leone and when they were in the midst of a, of a civil war. And the first year that I was there, I was there by myself, and I was staying at a YMCA. And uh, they, they were very, very cautious about don't film things, don't, you know, unless you've got permission, don't shoot things, just shoot with a camera, not with a gun, though there was plenty of that going on. Um, all these different things. So there's this one particular evening I got back and I was kind of staying on a hillside. Freetown is uh, the, the, like a big hill and then just a little flat a plain and then the ocean. And so this particular evening, beautiful, beautiful sunset. I'm like, I have got to capture this. And so I go up there and I, I took a video camera up there. And I, at this point in time, I've been there weeks. I knew all the people around me. knew it wasn't going to be a problem. In fact, a couple guys are waving at me like, hey, film me, film me. And I'm just taking a shot of this. And I'm out on the balcony and I can hear this guy. There's the balcony and there was like a big meeting room right behind him. That was the only room on that uh, floor. And I could hear uh, this guy come barreling into this room. And he's screaming at me, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I turn around and I'm not kidding. It is it's like Andre the Giant is standing on the other side of it, and he's furious. And I, th- I thought we were going to do like human uh, whack-a-mole, you know, like just, poosh, and he's going to just plunge me right into the ground. And he's, I mean, like veins are popping out everywhere in his head, and he's furious. Why are you here? What are you doing? And give me that camera. And I'm thinking, I'm about to meet Jesus in about five seconds here. I mean, seriously, he's threatening to take me to the police and have me arrested, and you're going to rot in prison. And, and so what felt like an eternity, it was probably really like 45 seconds, this goes on. And finally, he's like, give me your camera. What's on your camera? And that day, earlier that day, I'd been at an amputee camp. And that was part of the Civil War and what was going on there where they were just, they'd cut off limbs of anybody. I mean, babies. So you'd see six, seven, eight-month-old kids missing hands, arms, scars that ran the length of their, kid, their head. It was just horrendous. And probably more than anything, that was the thing that I wanted to take home for people to see. And, and I knew it was on there, and so I was kind of terrified, and I'm like, oh, this could go really, really poorly, because they said, listen, you've got to be careful. Don't let other people know that you have this. You're okay to shoot it, but you've you got to protect it. And so I began to tell him, listen, I've got authorization. I had permission for this, and he starts watching it, and he just starts deleting it. And then finally, he looks at me, and he goes, why are you here? I'm like, well, I'm standing. He's like, no, why are you in this country? What are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm working with an organization. I'm telling people about Jesus. And then write the question that is kind of terrifying in a context like that. Are you a Christian? I'm like, well, game over. <laughs> this is it. And I was like, I am. I am. I love Jesus. And, and I'm not kidding. It, it, was, it was comical. He's like, oh, I'm a believer too. And he does like the bro hug thing, <laughs> except I'm like horrified. I'm like, don't wet your pants while he hugs you. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Here's what you got to know. I was devastated when he, when he deleted that, when he deleted that footage. Two weeks later, two guys were executed because they had similar footage. Now, I didn't know it in the moment. In fact, I was really disappointed in the moment. But see, sometimes, sometimes we don't have the hindsight to recognize and realize God's intervention. God is constantly, constantly, constantly at work, constantly intervening. And sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we can't know it. But eventually God moves us to the place where we can see it. And just because you can't see it, loved one, don't trust that it's not happening right now. God, trust in God's continued intervention. I just wrote this down here, verse 17, right? Peter left. Sustained trust in God's continued leading. Think about the church. Think about the church here in this moment. 
About a week ago, James was executed. Peter now leaves, and, and he didn't leave like, hey, I'm going to be back in a couple days. He, he moved on to an itinerant ministry at this point in time. And, and from the outside looking in, this is a pretty fatal blow. I mean, you're talking about two of the three inner circle with Jesus. Some of the best that the church had to offer. One's dead and the other's gone. It'd be easy to see, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Jump down to verse 24. Here's the reality of any and every church that exists. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. See, loved ones, it's God. It's God who leads his church. It's Jesus who leads his church. It's not me. It's not the elders. This isn't even your church. It's not even our church. It's God's church. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who's leading it. There's only one, only one, only one that we're dependent upon, and it's Jesus. God's intervention sustains us. Here's the final thing, just briefly. In verse 20 through 23, uh, Herod gets angry with, uh, apparently, the leaders of the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they come to persuade him. He probably put some embargo on their food, or maybe we're using another port to uh, move food distribution, distribution through uh, the area. <clears throat> so they get this, this thing worked out, and on this particular day, Herod puts on his robes, and he's going to uh, deliver a speech. Verse 22, the people were shouting, as, as Herod's in there, the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Okay, quick side note, anyone says that about you, you correct them immediately. You are not God. You direct them to the one true God. Fatal, fatal error on Herod's part. Check this out, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Here's what I want you to see in that just briefly. We think about the church advancing, that God's judgment vindicates us. God's judgment, not your judgment, not my judgment, but God's judgment will vindicate us. Some of you have been wronged in horrendous ways and be encouraged, be encouraged. God's gonna make that right. He's going to deal with that. Some of you, some of you need to hear the warning that to wrong God, to act in this manner, comes with serious, serious consequences. God's judgment vindicates us. And then, right, we've read it, but I'll read it again, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And it just kept growing, kept advancing, kept moving forward on so many levels easy, easy, easy to look at this from a human perspective and be like, that's a real loss. That's a real loss to not have James. And man, we really need Peter, but it's not about the people. It's about the God who leads his church. And he's the one who leads. He's the one that advances. He's the one who moves us forward. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. It does not lose. It will not lose. I feel like it. Yes, there's issues. Yes, there's shortcomings. Yes, there's failures but it is unstoppable. It is unstoppable because the God who leads it is unstoppable. Because the God who leads it once and for all conquered all of sin and death. Which is what leads us to the communion table. And let me just frame our time here for communion briefly. Uh, and then we'll have you come forward. But as we come to the communion table, let me, let me just encourage you in a couple of things. One, 
Communion is a time of celebration and remembrance and reflection. It's to look back on our life, to celebrate all that Jesus has done, but to ensure that we're right with him and to be right with one another. And let me just read from 1 Corinthians 11 here briefly. Here's what Paul encourages all of us to do in approaching the communion table. He says this, that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a really bad choice. How do we avoid that? Here's how. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup to examine ourselves, to reflect on all that has gone on in our life, to, 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 to be drawn back to the cross, to appeal to the mercy and the grace of God. In a moment, I'm going to release you. We'll have you in the um, kind of the, the, the far aisles, head back in the center aisles, uh, come forward, try to do the one-way traffic thing as, as well as we can to move people forward. But one of the things we're going to do this morning, I'm actually going to ask the elders uh, to come to each of the tables. I'm going to have them serve all of us communion. And uh, so why don't you guys go ahead and come, come forward, uh, come to the table, guys. And uh, one of the reasons, uh, actually, uh, we had a retreat this past weekend, elders and wives. And uh, one, of, one of the reasons we want to do this, I think it's appropriate uh, for you to, to recognize and realize uh, how the elders serve uh, in this church and a biblical function of that, uh, but more so to help you also identify who they are and recognize uh, that, that part of the biblical mandate is, is, to, is to come under not only the authority of Jesus, but come under what, what God has called us to be as a church. And we think about the church advancing. We want to be the whole of what God has called us to be. So these guys are just going to simply serve you communion, which means they're just going to hold the plates and you're going to take the, the elements and then you're going to return to your seat and we'll partake uh, together. Uh, but be blessed as your elders serve you in this in a manner in which they serve you in so many other ways in an attempt, what you got to understand about elders is they're under shepherds. I'm an under shepherd of the one true shepherd, Jesus Christ. And as we attempt to, to shepherd and lead in a manner that's consistent with who Jesus is, in a way to lead this church in a way that's biblical and honoring to him. So we would ask you to come. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're invited to come uh, to the communion table. Uh, we'd ask you to come forward uh, to grab uh, the elements, take them back to your seats, and then we'll partake together once everyone's been served. Uh, so come to the communion table.